go. All right. Acts 9, 1 through 20. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who will call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. In July 2010, an unnamed 36-year-old man was kicked out of a bar for being too drunk in the Australian town of Broome. Beer still in hand, he stumbled across the street and saw a fence with a nine-foot crocodile on the other side. In his altered state, he thought that the croc looked a little thirsty, so he scaled the fence and tried to offer the beer as one offers a bottle to a baby. The croc was having none of it and moved away from him mercifully. Undeterred, the man peered over at the next fence from there and saw an even bigger crocodile, who looked like he, too, may want to drink. This crocodile was 16 feet long and weighed 1,800 pounds, not too far off from a literal ton. The crocodile was so large and so notorious that he had a name, Fatso. As he climbed the fence, his beer bottle dropped, smashing on the ground. So having nothing to offer Fatso, the man determined, again in his altered state, that the next best thing he could do for Fatso was to ride him like a horse. 
Understandably, this did not go well. Wildlife experts believe that the only thing that saved his life was that the weather was cold and Fatso, as a result, was a little sluggish. Or Fatso was feeling a little merciful too that day. Still, he did not escape fully unscathed as he stumbled back into the bar with chunks of his leg missing. Pub manager Mark Phillips is quoted as saying that he had bits of bark missing. Friend, <laughs> he was bleeding pretty badly. What a preposterous story. Whether you are in your right mind or not, riding a crocodile, especially one named Fatso, is never a good idea. We can find humor in this story because the man ended up surviving, but even if he hadn't, it's still kind of a crazy story. The story in today's passage is a little preposterous as well, and there's some elements of humor, not crocodile levels of humor, but still humor nonetheless. We are introduced to Saul, yet this is not his first introduction to us in the book of Acts. Earlier, chapter 7 tells us of the stoning of Stephen, and Saul is there with the coats at his feet approving of what the people are doing to him. Last week, we talked about Peter and the apostles. They were jailed and whipped for their faith by the religious leaders. The high priest and his cronies didn't want anything to change, for they had the power, they had the authority, and they were going to stop this new movement centered on Jesus, nicknamed the Way. Gamaliel, I think that's how you say his name, if you recall, is the one who stepped in and basically said, look, if this movement is of humans, it will fail. But if it's of God, you will be fighting against God. His words were heeded that day. It saved the apostles' lives, but not so much in the weeks and the months that followed. The church is exploding, and unfortunately, the persecution is ramping up as well. In fact, with the stoning of Stephen, it's taken a real dark turn. Luke writes that Saul then began going house to house, ravaging the church, throwing both men and women into jail. This drastic action created the first Christian refugees. Scripture tells us that everyone, except the apostles, fled Jerusalem in fear of their life. But Saul wasn't done. He wasn't satisfied that he had driven everybody out of Jerusalem. He wanted to stomp this movement out, and he began heading towards Damascus in Syria, about 150 miles away. Why? Well, our scripture here tells us that he wanted to arrest those up there, go to the synagogues and the houses and find them. But the deeper answer is he went up there because Saul loved God. Because Saul in his heart felt like that he and the other Jewish leaders were the right ones to lead others to God. And these other people were in fact leading them astray. We, or at least I, have always thought of Saul as the bad guy. And yes, he was, but at the same time, he thought of himself as the good guy. He was zealous for his God, and now you can argue maybe a little too zealous, but he was following God in the way that he felt like was best. And so he heads north, presumably on horseback, maybe on a donkey, maybe walking, we don't really know. And you know, however, that those in Damascus got word at some point that Saul is on the way. Put yourself in their shoes, the shoes of the refugees. 
You have given your life over to following Jesus. You think you're being a good Jew because you have found the promised Messiah, just like the scriptures said, yet instead of embracing this Messiah, the religious leaders feel threatened. And in turn, they begin terrorizing you and your friends. So you leave Jerusalem and you just run. You're scared, anxious, wondering what's going to happen. Wondering if you'll ever be able to return home. And then you get word that Saul and his henchmen are on the way. So what do you pray for in that moment? I thought about that for a while this week. Do you pray the prayers of David in the book of Psalms? Lord, please deliver me from the hands of my enemies. Do you pray for protection for you and your friends and others following the way? Or, and this is completely understandable, do you pray for something bad to happen to Saul? Or at least a distraction? Maybe he could get in a horse accident. Maybe he could fall off a cliff or be robbed or just decide to go somewhere else. Do you think anybody prayed for Saul to have a close encounter with the risen Savior, Jesus Christ? Of course, we have no real way of knowing, except that we know how us humans think and act when we're scared and we're afraid. Who knows? We do know that Saul was probably considered larger than life, that his name evoked fear, that his action had caused chaos, and that he was traveling on the Damascus Road to cause even more chaos. But then the, the preposterous happens, the unthinkable happens. God surprised everyone. Saul is knocked down off his donkey. I won't say the pun, but you all know what I'm thinking. And is blinded by a great light. Actually, the light appears first, and then he's knocked to the ground. But this amazing line comes, and it's red-lettered in my Bible, meaning that Jesus himself spoke it. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? For those biblical scholars out there, does that ring a bell? How God or Jesus phrases that question? Abraham, Abraham. Jacob, Jacob. Moses, Moses, Samuel, Samuel, Martha, Martha, Simon, Simon. And then Jesus called out on the cross, my God, my God. And then today we have Saul, Saul. Just a handful of times in the Bible, this double name is used. And whenever we see it, something of great significance is about to happen. It must be kind of God's way of getting people's attention, telling them to get ready for what new things he's about to do. He's about to say something very important that won't be simply just life-changing for that person, but will be world-changing. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Note what is said and what isn't said in this verse. Jesus didn't say, why do you persecute my church? or persecute my followers, he said, me. Why do you persecute me? When I lingered on that verse for a while this week while sitting at the Busy Bean in South Boston for a little while, this passage immediately came to mind from Matthew 25. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or go to visit you? 
And the king will, will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. What Saul was doing against the early brothers and sisters of the way wasn't just against them, but it was against Jesus himself. Friends, how we live our lives matters. How we treat others matters. Not just because God made everyone, and that's very important, but because what we do or don't do for others is how we treat Jesus himself. When we sin against others, we sin against Jesus himself. This is personal for Jesus. The same Jesus who loved, so mu loved us so much and loves us so much that he walked and talked among us and died for our sins. This Jesus, when we follow him and we believe on him, will welcome us with open arms to eternal life with God the Father. For what we do on this earth has heavenly consequences. To borrow language from our Bible study author, what we do here in the lower story has direct connections to the upper story, both good and bad. And it can become easy to forget that. Sometimes we're tempted to just only look beyond our own nose, our own circumstances, thinking that what we do has no more consequences than what we can see. But we are wrong to think that way. We are called to lay treasure in heaven by how we conduct ourselves on this earth versus chasing after earthly treasures. I think Jesus had something to say about that too, maybe. As Saul is helped up and led to Damascus, Ananias hears the same voice. Jesus only uses his name once, and his immediate response is, Yes, Lord. Jesus tells him where to go and gives instructions to extend hospitality to Saul. Excuse me. Understandably, Ananias objects. At the same time, he had the smarts to recognize immediately that it was Jesus calling him, but then he tries to argue. Ananias, yes, Lord. That's amazing to recognize him immediately and know who it is, and then turn around at the same time and then start arguing with Jesus. <laughs> Jesus, you really don't know what's going on here, right? Saul, he's kind of a bad guy. Jesus responds, doesn't argue with him, but just goes and tells him, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Those last words are kind of chilling, and indeed Saul, who has his name changed to Paul, would suffer dearly for the gospel, ultimately losing his life for it but he would also be one of the most, if not the most influential early Christian leader for literally the majority of our New Testament is written by him. God continues to surprise us, doesn't he? For he could have dealt with Saul very differently. He could have had Saul removed from the picture any number of ways. He could have had him just give up. He could have had him hurt or even killed. Instead, Jesus meets this outsider on the road to Damascus and brings him to the insider, Ananias. Ananias, who had every right to be skeptical of Saul, is the first one to call him brother. Who could have imagined that outcome? Once again, put yourself back in the shoes of a refugee hiding in Damascus, hearing that Saul's on his way, and then this happens. You would be incredulous. Really? He what? Jesus blinded him 
and then called him to meet with Ananias, and he's going to do what now? What a powerful testimony that Paul had. For just a moment earlier, as Saul, he would have considered Ananias an enemy, a heretic, as someone to arrest and persecute. Ananias clearly feared Paul for good, Saul, excuse me, for good reason. Yet Ananias, through the power of Jesus, becomes his first Christian brother, introducing him to what it means to follow Jesus. I like stories of unlikely friendships. If you Google unlikely friendships, don't do it now, save it for home, but you will see lots of stories and photos of animals from different species becoming friends. There's Bubbles, the African elephant, and Bella, the black Labrador. There's Torque, the dog, and Shrek, the owl. I like that name. Soraya, the orangutan, and Roscoe, the blue tick hound. That's an interesting pair right there. There's a chimpanzee and tiger cubs, and the list goes on and on. I noticed a lot of them had to do with dogs. <laughs> it just speaks to how great dogs are. I found another story along the same line. It's not about animals, but it warmed my heart nonetheless. Spencer Slayon was a 22-year-old rapper and producer from East Harlem, New York. He and his friends were going around the room one day talking about who their best friends were. When it was his turn, he said, My best friend is an 81-year-old white woman who lives in a retirement community in Florida. To be fair, he was exaggerating just a little bit, but she was definitely a friend. He met her while playing words with friends Scrabble on his phone, and she would play it on her iPad. His friends loved this, and his revelation set off a chain of events that led him actually flying to Palm Beach to meet Rosalind Gutman, a woman he'd previously only known through this phone, through this game. Quote, when I met her, it was so natural, he said in an interview with the New York Times. It wasn't like anything spectacular or different than you speaking to one of your friends. This story became popular because it hits a nerve. People appreciate hearing about an unlikely friendship that formed despite countless boundaries that would have kept them apart. Now, if words with friends a mobile phone game can bring unlikely people together, consider this literal act of Jesus with Saul and Ananias. These two were as polar opposite as you could get, yet God brought them together, leading to the full unleashing of the gospel beyond the Jews to the, to the Gentiles. That's us, forever changing the world. It's the ultimate outsider meets insider story. Ananias is older, as well-respected within the way. Saul is younger and well-known as being violently against the way. But through the power of Jesus, they're brought together. It's preposterous. It's incredible. But like Jesus' incredible and preposterous story, this is only the beginning. For through Saul, as Jesus told Ananias, he would be the chosen instrument used to proclaim Jesus' name to the Gentiles. And from this point on, we see that God is moving beyond his chosen people, beyond the people of Israel, to include everyone else, the outsiders. Those chosen people were originally set apart from the world. They were communicated with that they were and the only ones 
They were God's chosen people for thousands of years. But through Saul's conversion, we see here that God has significantly widened the table. God wanted to do a completely new thing, and in later chapters of Acts, we'll see that this new thing actually causes a lot of conflict between Jesus' Jewish followers and Jesus' Gentile followers. His Jewish followers weren't at all excited about the prospect of including Gentiles as much as Jesus was excited about it. But God, nonetheless, was determined to bring these outsiders to him, to widen the tent, to include us as his chosen people. Through this unlikely friendship, we are all welcomed at God's feet to worship him. Paul would later write in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 28, that there is no Jew nor Gentile, neither slave or free, nor there is male or female, for you all are one in Jesus Christ. Let me expand on that a bit. I don't like adding to scripture usually. That goes against everything I believe in, but I feel like it's appropriate. There is no hokey or cavalier. There is no tar heel or blue devil. Republican or Democrat, black, brown, or white, old or young, for you all are one in Jesus Christ. Remember, this is personal to Jesus. We are called to be one in him. How we treat each other, both insider and outsider, is how we treat Jesus. For when we begin viewing each and every person with the knowledge that they are loved by Jesus, and when we begin inviting more people to the table rather than drawing lines or building walls, when we begin extending hands of friendship rather than shutting doors, then and only then will we see God move in surprising ways. When was the last time you struck up an unlikely friendship, or at least were open to one? When was the last time you opened your heart to someone who was vastly different than you or very well could be called your enemy? Listen to the voice of God. Open your hearts and be ready when he tells you to go and buckle up for the surprise. Will you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a God who brings people together both insiders and outsiders, for allowing us to be part of your work here on earth. Thank you for the folks here at this church called Liberty who are faithfully living out your great commandment and your commission. Be with us when we walk out of here. Open our eyes so that we may see what you're doing and that we may see others as you see them. Open our ears to your voice. Open our hearts to where you may be leading us and give us the courage to follow you, wherever that may be. For it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.